This time now we have the privilege to go before our Lord and hear the preaching of the word. I invite you to turn with me to Peter's first epistle in chapter 1 as we will be considering verses 17 through 21. 1 Peter 1, verse 17 through 21. It's good to be here again. Thank you for those who have welcomed me and, and fed me and uh, shown me great hospitality and care. Um, it's a joy to be here, thankful to be here another, another week, um, and excited to consider and study God's Word together this morning. 1 Peter 1, 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Thus far is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing on it. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the privilege we have to hear your word Sunday after Sunday and the privilege that we have even to read it throughout the week. Father, we confess that we need your spirit to illuminate our minds, to grasp and understand the things of your word. For our minds can often be distracted and our hearts can be cold. And so we ask now that as we approach you to hear your word and to hear you speak, we ask that you would give us a heart to receive your word and the attention to grasp onto it. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy towards your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title for the message this morning is borrowed from Francis Schaeffer's book that he published in 1976, I believe, How Then Shall We Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Culture. Uh, and in that work, Schaeffer canvassed the history of Western civilization from the time of Rome up until the modern period, really trying to answer that question. How do we live as Christians in a culture that is declining, a Western culture that's declining? I would like to borrow that question to answer in our study this morning. I think Peter's trying to answer the same question in these particular verses, and in fact, verses 13 through 21 as a whole. I think he's trying to instruct this church on how they should live in the midst of a um, Greco-Roman world, in the midst of uh, persecution and ostracism. The churches during this period to which Peter's writing were certainly an anomaly in their day. Uh, they didn't fit in with the culture around them. Uh, the culture was confused with Christians. It was a new sect that kind of came up out of nowhere. Their leader, their Messiah, uh, was crucified, and they claimed that he was risen. Uh, Christians were persecuted or at least maligned, uh, both from the Roman side uh, of the culture uh, as well as the uh, Jewish side of 
the culture. For the Romans, they uh, persecuted Christians because they would not bow down to Caesar. They would not confess Caesar as Lord. They claimed that Jesus was and is Lord, and so they were persecuted from the Romans. And the Jews persecuted, or at least maligned and ostracized Christians because Christians claimed that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Covenant, that the Messiah had come and that they crucified him on a cross. And so Peter, I believe, is trying to help these Christians, these churches, know how to live in a culture like that. How do we conduct our lives in a culture that does not look favorably on Christians or the church? How should we live? Last week, uh, in this particular context, Peter instructed the church to hope in holiness, to set their hope on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ, to hope in the second coming, to hope in the return of Christ. Don't be distracted by the culture around you, whether in times of prosperity or in times of difficulty, but set your hope on Christ's coming. Believe in it. Be confident. Look for it. Rest in it. Not only be hopeful, but also be holy. Be a holy people, distinct from the culture around you, not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but rather being holy as God is holy, refraining from sin on one hand, but also loving God, being devoted to God as the sole object of your worship and your love and your praise. Now, in our study this morning, Peter gives a third charge, a third command to the Christians, to the exiles during this time. Conduct your, verse 17, conduct yourselves in a manner of fear throughout the time of your exile. This is a command to fear. There is a kind of fear in Scripture that causes one to tremble and flinch at the condemnation or judgment of God. There's a kind of fear that we see in certain individuals in the Bible who run from God, who are terrified of God, terrified of His wrath and judgment, live in horror or dread of God, almost like Israel did at the foot of Mount Sinai, when God spoke and gave the Ten Commandments to His people and there was thunder and lightning and the command, that was, the command was if anyone touches the mountain they shall be stoned. The, the people of God were trembling at the foot of the mountain at the holiness of God. Certainly there's a kind of fear or trembling that causes people to live in terror and fear almost like Luther did. A Luther-like trembling and fear. This kind of fear is the enemy of faith. This, this kind of fear is not the friend of faith. This is certainly not the kind of fear that Peter is asking this church to exercise. This is not the kind of fear that we are to live with throughout our lives. This is not the charge for the church to live in trembling fear of our God. No, those fears have been abolished. There is no fear in death anymore because Christ has conquered the grave. He has risen from the dead and he sits enthroned as a king on high. And now we do not fear God as the judge who will condemn us. Rather, we have a different kind of fear. And we don't fear God because now he's our father. He's our Father, and so we don't fear his condemnation. That has been done away with. Just like the hymn we just sang, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. This kind of trembling fear is not true of the Christian. 
This is not the kind of fear that Peter's charging the church to exercise and demonstrate. Rather, the kind of fear that the church is to conduct themselves with is a fear towards God who is both our Father on the one hand and judge on the other. And you will notice both of those qualities present in verse 17. If you call on him as Father who judges, a Father who judges, God is our Father. The fear that the church demonstrates or exercises is a fatherly fear, a paternal fear, a fear that is akin to love and awe and esteem. And it's a fear towards God who is our Father. We fear Him because He's our Father. We don't fear that He will exile us or disown us or cast us out of the home, but we fear Him because He's our Father. We don't usually put these two things together, Father and Judge, but Peter wonderfully combines both of those two things when talking about fearing God. We fear God because He's our Father and because he's our judge. I love the way that Paul Tripp put it. We are called to fear our father judge as one who holds us accountable with the spirit of a father. That is the one we are called to fear, the God who holds us accountable with the spirit of a father. God is our father. He's already adopted us. He's already made you his son, his daughter. He's not going to disown you. You don't fear that he will cast you out of the home. Rather, you fear the consequences of disobedience. You fear a father's displeasure, not a father's disowning you. You fear a father's displeasure, a father's discipline. You fear the consequences of sin, not the condemnation of wrath or judgment. We fear God because he's our father and he holds us accountable. And that's what a father should do, right? That is what a good father is. He holds his son or his daughter, his children, accountable. It would not be loving of a father if he let his son live whatever way that he pleased or let his daughter go the way that she wished. Rather, a good, loving, kind father disciplines his son or his daughter. And that's exactly what God does with his children. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves. And he chastises every child that he receives. The discipline of the Lord is for those who fear him. We fear God. We love God. We, awe, we stand in awe and esteem of God because he's our father. And we want to obey him. We have a desire. The fear is not a trembling fear. It's a desire to please our Father because He's our Father and because He's done so much for us. We don't fear the condemnation of God. We fear the consequences of our sin. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, Fear of God is a love for God which is so great that we would be ashamed to do anything that displeases or grieves Him and makes us happiest when we are doing the things that are pleasing to him. Perhaps we could even put it this way to sum up what Sinclair, Dr. Ferguson just said, to fear God in one kind of way is to delight to please him and hesitate to grieve him. Delight to please, hesitate to grieve. That is the, the conduct that we as Christians have. We have a, a delight in pleasing our Father. 
We have a delight and a joy in pleasing our God because of what He's done for us. And we fear or we hesitate to do the things that grieve Him. We delight to please. We hesitate to grieve. This is exactly the kind of fear that Peter wants Christians to have towards God. A reverent fear, a fear of awe, a fear of love, a fear of respect, a fear of esteem for our Heavenly Father who holds us accountable. And to exercise this kind of fear, Peter says, throughout the time of your exile, throughout the days of your exile, during your whole life that you live on earth in different seasons. Exercise this kind of fear towards God in different seasons. The, the churches to which Peter is writing would have certainly experienced different kinds of seasons where a fear of God would have been necessary or at least tested. They would have been, the people of God would have been tested to fear God in times of persecution and charged and called to fear God in times of persecution and they would have been charged to fear God in times of temptation as well. Certainly in times of persecution as I've already mentioned, this church was called to fear God, not man. Fear your God, not your persecutors. Do not fear him who can kill only the body, Jesus said in Matthew 10, but fear him who can kill both body, cast both body and soul into hell. Our fear is towards God because he's our father, not towards man, our persecutors. And that essentially means this, that we care more about the approval of God than we do about those around us. We would rather have the praise of God than the praise of man. We would rather obey God if it meant to suffer persecution than to disobey God and enjoy the praise and pleasure of those who are around us. This is the kind of attitude, the conduct that the church is to exercise in a season of persecution, to prefer the praise of God over the praise of man. And this has been true of the church throughout all the ages. Not only in this age, but think of the the three men in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they feared God so much that they would rather be cast into a furnace with God than to be in the temple worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's God. Daniel as well. He would rather pray to God and be thrown into a lion's den than to enjoy the praise of those who are around him and deny his God. To fear God in persecution means that it is better to confess Christ and have a bruised body than it is to deny Christ and have a bruised conscience. The church resolves that it is better to have a bruised body than it is a bruised conscience. We fear God more than we fear men. And this is true not only in times of persecution, it's true in times of temptations, temptations to sin. And this is exactly what these churches would have been confronted with. Chapter 4 of verse Peter, verse 3, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these things, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They're surprised that you don't conduct your lives in the same matter of sinful activity, idolatries and passions and drunkenness. And so they say to these Christians, why don't you join us? Why don't, why don't you join us in the temple? Why don't you come to our idolatrists' 
worship services? Why don't you, you join us in our sinful passions and, and drunkenness and orgies and sinful activities? Why don't you come with us? And likewise today, the, perhaps you've been asked the same question. Why don't you join me downtown and, and enjoy a night on the casinos? Why, why don't you come along and enjoy a night and just live for yourself? Why, why don't you join us? The answer is the same then as it is today because we fear God. We fear God more than men. I fear God so much, we should say, that we delight to please Him and we fear to grieve Him. This is just like Moses, who in Hebrews 11, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Moses feared God more than he did Pharaoh, the most powerful human being on the face of the planet at that time. He feared God more than he did Pharaoh. And he chose, Moses chose and decided that he would rather be a slave with the people of God than a king in the palace with Pharaoh. He feared God so much that he would rather be a slave with the people of God than a king in the palace with Pharaoh. To fear God in times of persecution means that we fear God more than man. To fear God in times of, in seasons of temptations of sin, we say that we fear God so much that we would, we delight to please him and we fear to grieve him. We want to live and conduct our lives in a manner that is pleasing to God because he's our father, because he holds us accountable. And because of both of those things, he will discipline his children when they are out of line, and that's what we fear. We don't tremble and quake and terror that God will condemn his children and exile his children. No, we fear the displeasure of a loving father. We fear to grieve him. We, as Christians, delight to please and fear to grieve now, what is it that, that motivates or drives or compels the Christian to, to exercise this kind of fear in cultures like this? What is it that, that motivates this? What is it that drives this kind of fear in Christians in a particular season of persecution or temptation of pleasure? Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways which you inherited from your fathers, knowing that you were ransomed. It's something that you know, something that you know to be true. It's not something that you've dreamed. It's not something that you've imagined. It's something that you know that is actually absolutely factual, certain, historic, and true. What do you know? You know that you were ransomed. You know that you were purchased. You know that you were redeemed. You rest your weight and confidence on the fact that Christ came to redeem sinners from their sin. To ransom means to, in this culture, in a Greco-Roman culture, it refers to the liberation of slaves by a payment, usually silver or gold. You were not ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold, but in that day, slaves were ransomed or liberated with perishable things like silver or gold. And it meant that you were liberated from all your obligations to your former master. You no longer had to submit to your former master. You no longer had to obey your former master. You no longer had to live 
in those obligations that your master set on you. Rather, because you've been ransomed, because you've been purchased, because you've been bought means you are liberated and freed from all your former obligations. Those obligations have been terminated. And we as Christians, in this context, God has liberated you from your, verse 17, 18, futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers. God has come, Christ has come, to liberate you from the obligations that you had to the vain and futile world around you, to the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. Christ has ransomed you from those things. He's liberated you from those things. He's freed you. He's delivered you from those things. And this certainly motivates a fear towards God, a gratitude towards God, a delight to please, a fear to grieve, because we know that God in Christ has delivered us from the futile ways of our sinful passions. He's rescued us. And that motivates a fear and an awe towards God because of what He's done. But Peter goes beyond that. What motivates our fear towards God is not just what he's ransomed us from, our futile ways. Moreover, what motivates this kind of fear towards God is what he's ransomed us with. What he has ransomed us with, the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Not perishable things such as silver or gold, but with blood, the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Christ has ransomed us not with money. We consider money, money is a very valuable thing, extremely valuable thing. You can't live without money. Have a hard time eating or drinking without money. You have a hard time providing for your children without money. You have a hard time sustaining your own life. You, you wouldn't be able to maybe buy a car to get to work. Money is very valuable. We need money to, to buy a house so that we can live in, to provide food for ourselves and for our family. Money is an extremely valuable commodity. We, we need it in order to survive. And Peter's point here is that you were ransomed with something much more valuable than this. And certainly, if God, if Christ did ransom us with money, with a large sum of money, we would feel indebted to fear him. We would, we would have the same posture, a delight to please and a fear to grieve. We would still have that attitude towards God if he spent a lot of money to ransom us. Just like if somebody paid a lot of money to, to bail you out of jail, you would feel a sense of indebtedness toward that person for what they've done. But Peter's saying it's much deeper than this. You've been purchased with something much more valuable, much more precious than money. You've been ransomed and redeemed with something that is sacred. Something that is sacred, not silver and gold that perishes, but blood that is permanent. You would feel indebted to God if he ransomed you with something that was valuable, but we feel even more indebted to God because he ransomed us with something that's sacred. Blood. Blood, human life. Blood is of much more value than money. As precious as money is to you, as precious as money is to survive, 
blood, human life, is of infinitely more value and worth. Blood and human life is sacred. We uphold the dignity of human life. We institute legal institutions to prosecute those who take human life. We preserve and protect and promote the value of human life. Blood is sacred in our eyes. Blood is a valuable thing. It is a precious thing. And if it is precious and valuable and sacred to our sinful eyes, how much more to the God who created man and who said, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. Blood is sacred in our eyes. How much more sacred is it to the God who created man? You can almost imagine the scene of a Jew in the Old Covenant walking into the temple and seeing the priest with blood all over his garments, blood on the temple, on the tabernacle, on the mercy seat, blood in the Holy of Holies, blood everywhere is a sobering picture. And the devout Jew probably was saying to himself, the verse in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood is necessary, is essential to wash away the sins of God's people. It is a precious thing. It is a sacred thing. And there was no other way for your sins to be wiped away. No other acceptance for the sinner. No other cleansing of a guilty conscience. No pardon for the penitent, but in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly we would feel indebted to God, to fear God, if we knew that, that he sent a substitute who was a, maybe a, the most godly pastor in the world or the godly man. We would feel, wow, God was so kind to me that he sent a, a fellow man to be a substitute, but it's more than that. He sent his own son, his only begotten son. Like Abraham gave his son on the altar, God gave his only begotten son to shed his blood to be our ransom. It is a knowledge of this that compels you to conduct your lives in a manner of fear. When you come to a knowledge of what God has done for you personally, that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This kind of knowledge compels you, drives you to delight to please your heavenly Father and to fear to grieve him, to conduct your lives in a manner that will please God and conduct your lives in a manner that you refrain from sin. This is, this is the knowledge that compels and motivates that kind of fear, a fear towards God, a healthy fear. And Peter goes on even further to talk about what a privilege it is for believers to know these kinds of things. What a privilege it is for the church not only to know that Christ is in his blood being shed was your ransom price, 
But he goes on in verse 20 to, to 20 and 21 to explain who this Christ is and who this Father is that we serve. Verse 20, he was foreknown, that being Christ. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. That's the emphasis of these two verses. All that Christ has done, all that God your Father has done for you was for your sake. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, meaning that the plan of your ransom, the plan of your redemption was planned before you were even born, before you could do anything for God, before you could do anything that would catch God's eye and say that individual is worth dying for. No, none of those things happened because the plan to ransom you from your sin was foreordained before you did anything, before you could conduct any good work. All of it was planned and foreordained by God, and God appointed his son. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was manifested in these last times for your sake. He was revealed. The church in the Old Covenant had to look forward. They had to rest their faith and their hope on a coming Messiah. We, in these last days, look back to the certain historical event that has taken place on the hill of Calvary. He was manifested for our sake. What a privilege the New Covenant Church has that we are able to look back and say, it's not just promised that a Messiah will come. It happened. It's certain. It's documented. It's historical. It has taken place. He was manifested for the sake of you. All of this was for your sake. Jesus Christ did not need to acquire a righteousness for himself. He said in his pastoral prayer, our high priestly prayer in John 17, for their sake I sanctify myself. All of Jesus' obedience, his submission to the moral law, was entirely for you. He didn't need to acquire righteousness for his own sake. He was already righteous and perfect. All of his obedience was entirely for your sake. He was manifested for you, and his death was entirely for your sake. He didn't have to die that death. He did it in obedience to his Father and in order to ransom and redeem you from your sins. All of it, all the work of Christ from his birth and unto his death was entirely for you. He did not need to do any of it for himself. He was entirely selfless in all of his obedience to God and to his law. And this was verse 21. So that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope are in God, meaning that your faith and hope are, are absolutely certain. There's a strong foundation of your faith. It's not a shaky foundation. We're not just hoping for heaven and hoping for the return of Christ as we do when we say hope in so many other instances. But rather, we are absolutely certain our faith and hope is grounded on God and what God has done. Not what we have done, but what, has, what God has done for his people in Christ. The charge, the command in the midst of 
persecution in the midst of temptation, whatever the season might be, Peter's charge to the church is to conduct yourselves with a reverent fear towards God your Father. And what sustains you to continue to fear God in this kind of situation? It's what you know about your redemption, your ransom, that the price to redeem you was not money that would compel us to fear God, but it was a much more, infinitely more expensive price to ransom you. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood washes away our sins so that now we may love to please and hesitate to grieve our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are, you are our Father. You have purchased us. You have ransomed us, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift that you have given to purchase your people that you went to the highest of heights and the lowest of depths to redeem sinners who had estranged themselves from you and provoked your justice and wrath. Father, we praise you for your grace and mercy, for your goodness towards your people. We ask that you would help us to live in a manner of, of reverent fear and awe of you because of what you've done for us. Help us to respond with gratitude, to respond with obedience, to respond with love because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And Father, we thank you that you have not only provided for us your Son, but you have provided for us the fellowship and community of the church and what a blessing it is to be in fellowship and worship with one another. We pray, Father, for the offering as well, that you would bless these tithes and offerings to further your kingdom and your church around the world and the proclamation of the blood of Christ that was shed for sinners. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.